SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Wednesday, October 18, while we have a conversation with Professor Luisa Slava of La Trobe University, reflecting on the outcome of the Voice to Parliament referendum, the impact on a national and international scale, and what happens next. The program will also be joined by Matthew Karakulakis, proclaimed 2023 Most Influential Lawyer in Australia at the Australasian Law Awards. Matthew explains what winning this prestigious accolade means for him as an Indigenous lawyer and AMK Law, his 100% Indigenous-owned legal firm. On NITV Radio today, we also look at a new study on heart disease, which, out of all diseases, remains the number one killer. All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Bertrand Tungandami, I'm Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first New data vindicates the government on voice to parliament as Anthony Albanese states the course on indigenous policy. Advocates call on the government to stop the prosecution of two Australian whistleblowers. And Israel denies responsibility for an airstrike on a Gaza hospital which Hamas says has killed hundreds. Antonio Albanese says it is not respectful to First Nations people to expect the next steps toward reconciliation to be formulated within days of the result of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. Mr Albanese hit back at claims from opposition leader Peter Dutton that the referendum was a vanity project for the Prime Minister, saying it disregarded the decades of work of Indigenous Australian advocates. New analysis from the Australian Electoral Commission seems to vindicate the government's insistence that the voice referendum was what First Nations communities wanted. The data shows that of the 10 polling booth catchment areas at the referendum with the highest Indigenous population, nine of them returned a yes vote. Mr Albanese says his government remains committed to reconciliation efforts, but it is too soon to detail the plans. The Uluru Statement from the Heart was developed over decades. The expectation that uh, the next step should be developed over days is not respectful and it's not one that I will engage in. Uh, We'll continue uh, to show respect. Uh, We'll take the time to do that. 
Our commitment to listening to Indigenous Australians is undiminished. Our commitment to closing the gap is undiminished. Advocates have called on the government to stop the prosecutions of two Australian whistleblowers, saying there's nothing to be gained in continuing their cases. A group of crossbench MPs and advocates have made the appeal from Parliament House, arguing that the cases against David McBride and Richard Boyle should be stopped. Mr McBride was the source for an ABC story in 2020, alleging some Australian troops had committed war crimes in Afghanistan. Rawana Raf from the Australian Centre for, Center for International Studies says the pursuit of the whistleblower undermines the pursuit of accountability for those involved in wrongdoing. We should be proud of the process that Australia has set up to ensure that there is accountability for the allegations of serious wrongdoing, war crimes that occurred in Afghanistan in our names. We should be proud of the people who came forward to ensure that that process actually occurred. David McBride is the first person that will face trial for the allegations of wrongdoing of war crimes in Afghanistan. This is a serious injustice. Australia will supply Fiji with an extra 14 Bushmaster military vehicles and fast-track visa applications for visitors from the Pacific nation and a new strategic partnership. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese has welcomed Fijian Prime Minister Sitiveni Rampuka to Canberra, where he where they have signed a new Vuvale partnership named after the Pacific White for Family to tackle climate change and strengthen economic ties. This comes as Mr. Rabuka has made calls for the Pacific to re- refrain from actions that could undermine security in the region and the establishment of a peace zone. Mr. Rabuka says he would rather Fiji go back to its traditional relationships after pledging closer ties with Australia and announcing an intention to scrap a policing agreement with China. The association we have and uh, our Bubale partnership uh, reflects that. We are, uh, we are a family and a lot of the things we do within our sections of the family uh, are supported by others. The National Intelligence Chiefs of Australia and the United States say the Chinese government is engaged in the largest theft of intellectual property in history. ASIO Director General Mike Bajes and FBI Director Christopher Ray have met in California for a conference on Chinese hacking, the first ever public meeting of the Five Eyes Intelligence Partnership. The group says a public meeting with representatives from England, New Zealand and Canada also in attendance is necessary because of the level of the threat posed by China's spying activities. Mr. Bajes says that it is no surprise that China is attempting to steal Australian innovation and that ASIO had detected and disrupted a plot to infiltrate a prestigious Australian institution in the last month. The Chinese government is engaged in the most sustained, scaled and sophisticated theft of intellectual property and expertise in human history. It's it's unacceptable, it's unprecedented. China has developed a ruthless business model aimed at seizing commercial advantage. Israel has denied responsibility for an airstrike on a hospital in Gaza City, which Hamas health authorities say has killed hundreds of people. The Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas, says at least 500 people have been killed in an attack on the Al-Ali Arabi Baptist Monastery on Tuesday evening. 
Israel says it is working to confirm the attack, which would be by far the deadliest Israeli defense airstrike in five wars fought since 2008, but has suggested that a failed rocket launch by Islamic Jihad, Jihad militants is the cause. Palestinian representatives to the United Nations, Riyad Massoud, has said he believes Israel is responsible and called for a ceasefire in the conflict. Those responsible for this crime should face justice and should face accountability. We as an Arab group demand immediately a ceasefire because the continuation of the war it means killing more Palestinians every moment. This comes amid retaliatory measures from Israeli forces following attacks by Hamas militants which have killed at least 1,400 people in Israel, while Hamas says at least 3,000 people have died in Gaza. President Joe Biden's trip to the Middle East has hit a major bump after Jordan called off a four-way summit scheduled for Wednesday with Mr. Biden and other leaders. Mr. Biden, who is due to arrive in Tel Aviv shortly, had hoped to tone down tensions and prevent the war from spreading in the response to the conflict that has erupted in Israel between Hamas militants and Israeli defense forces. This comes as President of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, said he was cancelling a meeting with Mr. Biden in Jordan following an airstrike on a hospital in Gaza, which Hamas says has killed hundreds of people, either wounded or seeking shelter there. Jordanian Foreign Affairs Minister Ayman Safadi told Al-Mamlaka TV that the war between Israel and Hamas was pushing the region to the brink and the summit would be postponed. Meanwhile, Australians are being urged to take the first available flight out of Israel as the federal government monitors the threat of attacks on home soil. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says there are around 1,200 people in the conflict zone who are in contact with the government, receiving updates about returning home while 46 Australians are trapped in Gaza. This comes after a flight from uh, Dubai carrying more than 200 people, including Australians and dual citizens, citizens, landed in Sydney on Tuesday evening, while a flight from London carrying another 200 people is due to land in Sydney tonight. Ms. O'Neill has told Seven Sunrise on Wednesday that Australia's, Australia's terror threat level remained the same, but the government was vigilant and focused on domestic security. The situation in the Middle East is deteriorating rapidly and we are urging people, if you want to leave, to leave. Take the first flight that is offered to you and get back to Australia as quickly as you can. I'm confident that we can get through this um, in the peaceful manner in which we resolve things as Australian citizens, but please know that we are watching very, very closely and carefully. Victoria will become the second Australian state to ban the Nazi salute after a series of high-profile anti-Semitic incidents. Legislation making it illegal to intentionally display or perform a Nazi gesture or symbol in public passed Victorian Parliament on Tuesday night. The ban triggered by neo-Nazi performing the salute outside Victorian Parliament in March also comes, also covers anything closely resembling a Nazi gesture or symbol. Those who break the law face fines of more than $23,000 or 12 months in prison. Victoria's Minister for Police or Victoria Victoria's Minister for Police, Anthony Carbines, confirmed action will be taken. Parliament has put on notice, reflecting the values of our community, 
that that behaviour not only won't be tolerated, as vile and disgusting as it is, but you'll feel the full, full force of the law. Police will have the power to direct a person to remove a Nazi symbol or gesture from public display as well as make arrests and lay charges. Officers will also be able to apply for such warrants to seize property displaying a Nazi symbol or Nazi gesture. Seniors will soon be able to earn more money without their fortnightly age pension being affected. New laws being introduced to federal parliament on Wednesday will give a $4,000 boost to those on the pension who are also in a form of employment. Under the proposal, the maximum work bonus balance limit will be increased from $7,800 to $11,800 from the start of next year. Social Services Minister Amanda said the new laws would remove obstacles to those on the pension looking to return to work in some capacity. And to sport, Australia's players have emulated their cricket counterparts by defending the Ashes in London, defeating New Zealand 2-0 to retain a trophy last contested 69 years ago. The win ensured Australia keep the century-old Anzac Soccer Ashes Trophy, which was recently uncovered in a Queensland garage, having been missing since the mid-1950s. The victory brings an end to four-match losing streak ahead of crucial 2026 World Cup qualifiers next month against the Bangladeshi and Palestinian teams. Harry Suta claimed the first goal as the bull brushed his chest on the way in after Mitchell Duke's 14th minute shot and Jackson Irvine's headed in Martin Ball's 76th minute corner. Midfield Massimo Luongo, back in the team for, for the first time in almost five years, told Channel 10 the game was a joy to play in. Just, I just enjoyed it from minute one. I just went out there. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't building it up in my head or anything. I just felt, oh, this is nice. It was nice. It felt like I'm back home, but obviously I'm in England, but second home to me, and yeah, it was incredible. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, sunny 38, Perth, mostly sunny 25, Adelaide, sunny 26, Melbourne, also sunny 23, Hobart, much the same 23, Albury Wodonga, sunny 21, Canberra, partly cloudy 22, Wollongong, cloudy 19, Sydney, cloudy 21, Newcastle, partly cloudy 22, Brisbane, partly cloudy 25, Townsville, sunny 21, Keynes, mostly sunny 31, Alice Springs, sunny 31, Darwin, sunny 35, and the Torres Strait Islands, cloudy day, at the top of 30 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. TV radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 p.m. or anytime online. I'm Bertrand Tungandame and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Cooling Nation this Wednesday afternoon. Coming up next, well, I caught up with uh, Matthew Karakulakis, uh, who was proclaimed the most influential lawyer this year in Australia at the Australasian Law Awards. As you hear, Matthew explains what it means to him winning such a prestigious accolade as an indigenous lawyer and also to his uh, legal firm AMK Law, a 100% indigenous-owned legal firm. On NITV Radio today, we also look at a new study on heart disease, which out of all illnesses remains uh, the number one killer. 
But first, after the weekend's referendum that returned a, resor- a resounding no, I caught up uh, with one of Alatrop University's legal experts who has been observing the road to the voice referendum and reflecting on what happens next. And here's our conversation. <laughs> Professor Luis Eslada is a research professor of international law at Latrobe University. He is one of Latrobe University's experts who have been observing the road to indigenous voice to parliament and exploring what happens next. The result has been declared and it is a resounding no. Professor Eslada, first, thanks for joining us and uh, can you share with us your observation on uh, the result, a resounding no, and what's your reflection on this uh, result? So the first thing that must be said about the result is that there is a clear no from the part of the public towards a very simple request made by First Nations peoples to the Australian population. That resounding no, uh, therefore, needs to be read in the context of uh, First Nations peoples' long-standing battle for the recognitions of the place within the history of the nation and the daily management of uh, the Australian government and affairs. Um, two things come out of that initial point. One, that uh, the conversation must continue. Uh, the request was a simple request uh, to recognise the uh, historical existence and the ongoing sovereignty of First Nations peoples over this land. Um, and secondly, that even though uh, there was a resounding no, that no was in relation to that request. There are other issues on the uh, table of conversation that came out of the Uluru statement from the heart uh, requesting, as well as voice, treaty and truth. And those two things, uh, I suppose, are going to be the two main points of conversation in the months coming. One thing I didn't mention in the introduction is that uh, you're also an expert in international law, development and uh, global governance. Now, uh, looking at this result, what, in your view, is the significance of this uh, resounding no for Australia on an international level? So the international perspective is here very important because... Australia already have obligations at the international level to recognize the existence of First Nations peoples as well as uh, a recognition of their voice or their representation in the daily affairs of government. At the international level, that is known as uh, Indigenous International Law or International Law of Indigenous Peoples. And that body of law is incredibly important for Australia, but for all of those nations that still have within the territory First Nations peoples. What happened uh, over the weekend here in Australia uh, in this context sends a very strong signal about the still struggle domestically here in Australia to uh, respect, to endorse those international obligations. Leading up to this uh, referendum, uh, in one of uh, your statements, uh, with uh, your 
panel of experts, you said that most of all, a defeat in the referendum should not be used as an opportunity to undermine the legitimate claims made by Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples for direct representation. Can you elaborate a little bit on that for us? So one of the sad developments over the recent decades um, across the world in relation to referendums and constitutional reforms is that uh, progressive agendas have been uh, facing a backlash uh, at the moment of voting. In my own experience, I have seen, for example, how the uh, Colombian peace referendum in 2016, the Brexit referendum in 2016 as well, and and last year, the uh, referendum in Chile uh, that aimed to change the 1980 Pinochet constitution was defeated or received a no, no for the change of a new constitution. Um, and in all of those in- instances, uh, progressive agendas um, or regressive agendas have been undermined or, or propelled. And uh, importantly, what it has come out of those um, electoral processes is, uh, is uh, a numerical reality that has been sadly uh, further mobilized to undermine often minority rights. So in the context of Australia, what happened over the weekend, we have a, a resounding 60.6% uh, of the population saying no, versus a 39.4% population saying, of the population saying yes. Um, so what we need to remain aware is that these numerical representations of electoral, uh, electoral battle is not mobilized to undermine the rights of First Nations peoples and the very legitimate claims over this land. From the onset, it looked like a, an uphill battle, a really tough challenge, uh, while having to convince 97% of the population to decide on an issue of uh, utmost importance for just uh, 3% of the population. That's uh, a steep mountain to climb. Are there any examples internationally of uh, such a numerical imbalance uh, countries uh, where this happened and uh, on which you can draw uh, some lessons from? Uh, there is a, a very strong body of comparative examples that uh, indigenous people across the world constantly tap onto. In the context of Latin America, for example, there is a, a, a whole constitutional law tradition in those in First Nations people and uh, recognizing the direct representation uh, at the level of the legislative, or put in the context of Australia, the parliament, so that reserve seats for indigenous peoples uh, to be kind of direct, uh, have direct presence in, in the affairs of government. Similarly, over the recent years, indigenous, not only just indigenous peoples, as individual communities uh, have become the right part of government, but also the cosmologies and the way they understand the relationship uh, to the land, to earth, has been elevated to uh, a constitutional level. So uh, in Ecuador, uh, in Bolivia, and um, for example, there has that, that indigenous uh, views of the planet, humans and non-humans have taken the form of um, a recognition of the rights of the Pachamama or the principle of when we really good living um, they are coming directly from the, the cosmologists. Uh, now, it, it, Ecuador and Peru are interesting 
uh, sorry, Ecuador and Bolivia is just an example because they also talk about uh, demographics. So in Bolivia, indigenous population are significantly represented in, in the global in the domestic population, but that's not necessarily the case of Ecuador. And there are also many cases where, uh, for example, in the case of Colombia, where indigenous peoples have quite strong rights, uh, indigenous peoples are in a very kind of uh, demographically speaking a large uh, group. However, the rights are still uh, endorsed and recognized. The reason for that is because First Nations peoples' rights are uh, uh, special rights that are not necessarily the outcome of uh, the weight on national demographic statistics. They are coming out of the historical claim over the lands in which they continue to inhabit. Professor Islada, before I let you go, any closing thoughts on uh, the outcome of this referendum? Aboriginal people endorsing their voice and that fought for the voice to be passed have asked um, immediately after the results of the referendum were released uh, for a week of silence and mourning, uh, a week of reflection. I think we all need to be attentive to that call and also weigh attentively to what uh, First Nations people will uh, like to do, how they would like to proceed in the coming weeks. Uh, this attention is a form of respect uh, to them, uh, but also it is the best way for us to, as a nation, give ourselves a space uh, for what is coming to happen in the most mature and democratic way possible. We must now go to a break, but stay with us, because when we come back, we have a conversation with uh, Matthew Karakulakis, an Aboriginal lawyer who just won the most influential, most influential lawyer of the year at the Australasian Law Awards. Stay tuned. SBS is updating its radio schedule. From October 5, there will be more times to listen. With repeated programming on Wednesday, Friday and Saturday at 6pm on SBS 1. To find out more, visit sbs.com.au slash audio. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Matthew Karakulakis has recently been acknowledged in the Most Influential Leading Lawyers in Australia Awards at the 2023 Australasian Law Awards. And I'm glad to say Matthew has just joined us on NITV Radio to reflect on the significance of uh, this accolade, not only for himself, but also for his legal firm AMK Law. Matthew, first of all, congratulations and uh, welcome to NITV Radio. Thank you very much for being here with you, Bertrand. Now, tell us about this accolade and what it means to you and your legal firm, AMK Law. Absolutely. And could I just also first um, just acknowledge the traditional owners of the land um, that we're speaking from today, and I'm here on Ghana country, but since we're going to be aired um, online and today's day and age where people can be really across the nation, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of, of your land, Bertrand, and, and all First Nations peoples that are listening to this today and also pay respect to, to, to all mob and our elders and past, present and future leaders. Um, the, the, uh, the accolade and uh, 
what it means and about the actual award itself. But actually it does mean a fair bit and really grateful to have won this award because being named as one of the most influential lawyers in Australia, I mean, it's truly an honour um, that I'm really grateful for, but I can't take full credit about because here's the thing, when, when I hear about this kind of recognition, it's really about the amazing team, the amazing people that have supported me and AMK Law throughout the journey. And, and so I think it's really important to be able to have a great team around us and have people that we can look up to as leaders and who can encourage us, like our family, our mob, our, our friends and you know other Aboriginal business people as well, all on this journey together, as well as our community. Uh, your legal firm, AMK Law, is a 100% Indigenous uh, law firm. Tell us more about uh, the firm, your, speciali- your specialisation, and uh, how you approach your work from an Indigenous perspective. Um, AMK Law is a firm where we focus on commercial and dispute resolution laws. We're really grateful because we've got relationships and do amazing work with a whole heap of amazing Aboriginal leaders, Aboriginal businesses, community organisations, we work with government. We also work with um, some large listed entities, some Commonwealth government departments, and I uh, am also grateful for the opportunity of being able to work with excellent non-Indigenous people as well. I feel a great sense of passion and purpose in the work that we do to empower First Nations peoples and, and our community. But I have always been here with an open heart and embrace diversity within this nation and there's good people from everywhere so um, working with good people and good organizations that aren't indigenous is something that we particularly enjoy doing as well i think that diversity is a big piece of who we are and i think part of that is because i'm proud of my aboriginal heritage i'm proud of my greek heritage as well and i think that one of the true beauties of australia as a country is, is our diversity and our multiculturalism now, it have to be said that uh, when it comes to First Nations people and the law, First Nations people have uh, always uh, been uh, mistreated. And uh, one only needs to watch a recent episode of uh, Rebel, is a Co- Rebel with a Cause, uh, an episode depicting the life and battles of uh, Pato Shen, was the first uh, Indigenous uh, magistrate uh, in New South Wales, just to have an inkling of an understanding of uh, the extent of uh, this uh, mistreatment. So working with First Nations people in your legal firm must have a special meaning for you, especially yourself being a, an Indigenous lawyer. Absolutely, Bertrand. There's a famous TED talk by, by a guy called Simon Sinek, and he says to start with why whenever we're doing something in our work and in our life. And the overall motivation for AMK Law and the work and in the work that I do as well, it's definitely... I'm greatly motivated by empowering our First Nations peoples in our First Nations community. I think that that's the heart and core of all the work that I do and also all the work that AMK Law does as well. And through our work, um, we feel you know, really, really grateful. At this you know, present moment, speaking about empowering First Nations community and, and, and our people is something that is, uh, you know, there's a bit of pain uh, from the the outcome, the result, and what we've shown over the weekend with the voice referendum. But if we speak about the motivation towards empowerment of, of our 
Aboriginal people. It's really about understanding that business is a powerful vehicle and we've got some programs to do with black cladding and we've got some programs around governance and through my nearly 20 years of experience as a commercial and also litigation dispute resolution lawyer, it's these are areas where I feel that I can make the most meaningful impact. A lot of Aboriginal lawyers go out and work in areas like human rights and criminal justice, family violence, and there's been a great need in those kinds of areas for many years. I personally feel that I'm just not cut out for those areas, but I do personally love, appreciate, and feel grateful to be able to empower our, our people through through those areas, like in commerce and, and governance and and become stronger that way. So it's excellent uh, building capacity in those areas as well. It's great yeah, that uh, you're in uh, that particular niche where Indigenous presence is needed. And coming back to the accolade, it's come at a very significant moment on a macro level and a micro level. On a micro level, we are in October, right in the middle of uh, Indigenous Business Month, and also right in the sidelines of uh, the referendum that took place over the weekend on Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Can you explain to us or just uh, reflect for us uh, on uh, what it means uh, being awarded an accolade in this context? It's a, um, it's a question that brings up a mixed feeling of emotions, to be honest, Birkin, because on the one hand, being named as one of the most influential lawyers in Australia, it, it's truly an honour. And I'm very grateful for that. And also I feel that it can be a great vehicle to be able to help to empower um, our other Aboriginal businesses and our Ab- other Aboriginal community members through the recognition that it brings as well. And there's also great gratitude that I was explaining earlier about those that have supported me in my own journey. Then we speak about the, the context of of the voice and the referendum result over the weekend and, and, and then Indigenous Business Month. I think that Indigenous Business Month, it's a fantastic time of the year when you look at business itself being a powerful vehicle and this year's theme being action today, impact tomorrow. Um, and we look at business as a way of closing the gap and achieve um, long-term sustainability outcomes that hopefully through business, it will lead to better lives for our Indigenous peoples and for our future generations as well. So this says some uh, great unity and, and empowerment and recognition that comes to us as First Nations peoples through the business opportunities of Indigenous Business Month and what that represents. So there's a couple of positives there, but I honestly feel that um, the result of the weekend is, yes, it, it's really, really hard. It's it's definitely a feeling of mourning. And I was, I was honestly even feeling um, challenged speaking about the award and what it means because earlier, because there's a great overshadowing in all that we do, I think, at the moment in terms of the results on the weekend. I think that you know, a place in the Constitution would have been fantastic, would have been a great step forward and then to be in the position of you know, the majority of Australians having denied us that right. It, it's really painful. But I think that I personally, and, and what we do, we all do, feel our own pain and we feel the pain of our 
of our, of our ancestors, our elders, our community, our future generations. There's just there's a whole heap of pain right now. I totally concur with you and uh, fully understand uh, the depth of the pain that uh, First Nations people are feeling uh, right across the country. And being in the media, I could predict, I could see that they know uh, would uh, prevail, but uh, nothing prepared us to the extent of uh, the resounding rejection of uh, the, the the question that was put to the people. It really was an outcome that that, that is painful. And when you look at the past and the you know the past two hundred and thirty odd years and what's happened to our First Nations people and our families since that time, it was seen as a way of trying to, to um, make a step forward from that deep pain from the past. But I think that um, at the moment, we are feeling that the consequences, feeling you know, racism, really, I think, as, as a result. And one of the most painful things that I think happened through referendum process was there were a lot of people that were making outlandish racist comments that were, were disguised as being a political opinion. I just uh, hope that we can come together, support each other in this time and help each other. And I just hope that, that we can, you know, that we, that, we can recon- that we can recover and our families and our communities can get through again. Yeah. Well, Matthew Karakulakis, thank you very much for joining us on NITV Radio today. Thank you very much for having me, Bertrand. You're with NITV Radio. Hey, this is Makesha. To all the mob listening and tuning in today, just sending big love, big strength, and stay deadly and stay resilient. Welcome back, I'm Petran Tungandame, and you're listening to an ITV radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Wednesday afternoon. Well, heart disease is still the number one killer in every region of the world, and its prevalence is increasing. Dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, is the second leading cause of death in Australia, with COVID-19 ranked third. <laughs> The leading cause of death in every region of the world is heart disease and it's a health challenge that's getting worse. Former President of the World Health World Heart Federation, Professor Fausto Pinto, says the statistics are not only alarming but also frustrating because heart disease can be prevented. In 2021, there were 20.1 million people that died of cardiovascular disease at the global level. 2019 were 18.6. So unfortunately, the prevalence of disease and the global mortality is actually increasing. And why is this happening? Well, and it's even a little bit more disturbing because we know what can cause cardiovascular disease. 80% of cardiovascular disease is potentially preventable. We have what we call the risk factors that are well known, like smoking, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, meaning high fat in the blood, uh, diabetes. There are many conditions that we know can affect the cardiovascular system and be responsible for cardiovascular diseases. 
Historic rate was smoking and other public health challenges that caused heart disease, but now other risk factors have increased, such as diabetes and obesity. Professor of Cardiology at the University of London, Rias Patel. It's a challenge that you can find junk food, pretty much as we, as we sort of colloquially call it, in every part of the world, but finding fresh, healthy, cooked food is actually much more difficult. Um, and that, again, links into the concerns about how food availability uh, is, is the biggest problem that countries face. Professor Patel says public health policies are needed to encourage healthier lifestyles. Even in developing countries, you can have someone on a scooter come and deliver it to you. Um, you don't even need to work those calories to go and get that food. So these are real concerns that, that need to be addressed, but it has to be done in an economically viable way that allows our economies to continue to function, but doesn't penalise you know, the, com- the companies that are trying to do good but perhaps putting restrictions on those activities that, although they may make money and generate tax revenues, are actually ultimately harmful for the population. That was Riaz Patel, Professor of Cardiology at the University of London, ending this report produced by Greg Diet for SBS News. SBS is updating its radio schedule. From October 5, there will be more times to listen. With repeated programming on Wednesday, Friday and Saturday at 6pm on SBS 1. To find out more, visit sbs.com.au slash audio. And uh, that's all from us on NITV Radio today. Your program uh, will be back uh, on Friday same time between 1 and 2 p.m. I'm Bertrand Tungandame thanking you for staying with us this Friday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yellow.